our mental health comes from nature. So I would, I'd know a few people who suffer depression and I would say we cannot fight depression on a depleting planet. It can't be done. That's why it's so important to maintain wherever we can intact nature and support accessibility as much as possible. Right. There is no alternative, so we just have to keep organizing, even if it seems futile, even if it seems like a dreamland. Um, well, dream, well, I mean, I have a dream, is a very, a very evocative uh, thought to bear in mind. And collectively, if we can develop, and I have a dream, that's not airy fairy, it's not a, that's not a kind of a fanciful notion, it's core. If we don't have that in our minds, we're reduced to what you were talking about earlier, constant re reaction to, to uh, single oppressions, you know? So we've got to do that, and I don't know, we have to kind of bring our tutors from the past, from real and imaginary, to some uh, field <laughs> that we all gather in, and uh, figure out a way of, you know, uh, give James Connolly his platform, ask uh, Baldwin to come over and say a few words, ask uh, Hooks to give them, give them their platforms. <laughs> <laughs> through us, you know. Yeah. I think learning, reading, being like Connolly's famous dictum was organise, educate, agitate. I can never remember the right order they go <laughs> in. And I, to be honest, I think they always, they always shuffle and change around. But education is a huge part of it, you know, to, so that you can make the organising and the agitating more, give them more impact, you know. And then when I came back from Africa, being a, an elder in the society of Ireland, I would suppose, yeah, it was hard to find a place, I would say, because capitalism has so divided the society that what we find are the older people are over there, they have nothing to say and they're powerless anyway, and they're getting old and they're ready. And then there's the younger people, there's the millennials, and then there's the zoo generation and the Z generation, and I don't know who they are, but they're all created by this capitalist system just in case they uh, pass on some special knowledge to each other which would interfere with the system, you know, through the tradition. Now I go into Extinction Rebellion and the first thing I hear in Extinction Rebellion is every part of everyone is accepted. Every part of everyone is accepted. That's what, there's no shaming, there's no blaming. And, it, we, and I find myself being able to pass on to younger people some information about how life was in Ireland back then and experience from Africa. And they're searching for ways of creating community. Actually, one of the things I found when we get together in Extinction Rebellion, that loneliness among young people is, uh, is to be acknowledged. It isn't just older people who are lonely in their houses and can't go out. There's quite a lot of loneliness among younger people. And this, this, rebellion, this community of Extinction Rebellion is able to somehow or other um, acknowledge that, appreciate it, and uh, yeah, give some, maybe some uh, direction or some, a friendship, really, a 
across across age line, across ages and uh, and um, boundaries and, and uh, ethnic groups and all different groups. You know? Our human form, our bodies, our consciousness, developed in a dialectical relationship to the land. A gradual co-evolution marked by constant exchange. Our understanding of ourselves, our self-consciousness, our psychological makeup, is utterly dependent on and created by the land that sustains us. Our ancestors were moved off the land in their droves, which was then enclosed and privatised by imperialist robber barons. All private property today was once held in common. Our ancestors adjusted to urbanised life and became the working classes. Despite the 12, 14, 16 hour workdays and the week endless work weeks of the Industrial Revolution, working class communities developed. The drive for connection is unstoppable because it is connection and exchange that makes us who we are. The growth of working class community eventually found its political expression in the movement of organised labour in the 19th century and then the international revolutionary proletarian movement. Varying currents developed the world over, communist, socialist, anarchist, parties and unions. The wave of socialist revolutions that occurred in the early to mid 20th century resulted in a world in which one third of humanity lived within a socialistic economic system. The forces of reaction did not sit idly by. Imperialist capitalism represented politically by the governments of the USA and Western Europe, fought back. Eventually, capitalist forces crept back into the communist-controlled bloc, and some of it collapsed completely. The anti-capitalist alternative fell back into dreamland. Today, capitalist control has seeped into our personal lives like in no other period of history. The revolutionary activists of the labour movement a century ago fought and died for our right to so-called leisure time, the right to a life outside of wage slavery. But the fight went no further. Today, our so-called free time is more and more eroded by the profiteering of capitalist producers, requiring us to work more for less pay, spend more on less food, scarcer shelter and poorer healthcare. And what little free time we have is increasingly mediated by the tech and media monopolies. The capitalists are winning. They have kept us utterly dependent on them and cut off from the land, from where our lives spring. We don't yet fully understand the psychological ramifications of our separation and alienation from the land, although we can see the early symptoms in the proliferation of mental health issues and endemic loneliness that defines Western culture today. The process has its roots in the agricultural revolution that occurred thousands of years ago, but really it began in earnest with the industrial revolution. So in evolutionary terms, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. It's not too late to take charge of our own development. Human beings, just like the habitats we evolved in, are powerful expressions of the life drive. Resilient, adaptable and tenacious. As Ted showed us in our walk around the Gaira in episode 1, ecosystems can bounce back once the destructive force is removed. For us, the primary destructive force is the capitalist profit motive, the great waste maker. We cannot develop further as a species unless we remove this dead weight from around our necks. Through their technological interventions, their innovations in mass communication, the capitalist class aimed to keep us cut off from each other, keep us spending our time and money on individualised distractions. The solution is the same now as it was 100 years ago. Organise. Connect. Take the means of production, the means of communication, and develop them to meet our own goals. Remember, 
the land is your birthright. Alan Watts said, You didn't come into this world, you came out of it, like a wave out of the ocean. Because of this, the land is yours. To put it more concretely, the land is yours because it was robbed from your ancestors. This is true no matter where you live. We came from it, we will one day go back to it. The physical and psychological barriers built by capital mean absolutely nothing at the raw edge of life and death. Knowledge is socially created. We must learn from revolutionary teachers past and present and elders and youth in our communities. The dissolution of community, the isolation and atomization of individual human beings is liberal capitalism's greatest weapon. Connecting to each other is the first step towards reconnecting to the land. And this we must do because a cosmology based on our embeddedness in the world is the only way we can build a society that is self-reinforcing rather than self-destructive. You heard from Jacinta and Thomas in earlier episodes. Their townland is one of the areas covered by gold prospecting licences. They run an off-grid community centre at their home. Doing things yourself, not relying on the system. And, and, and it's hard work. It really mm. is. We had a lot of kids growing up in the meantime around us and with us. And it was, but it was not impossible, but it, it was hard. And the hardest part, of course, was like, you know, we live in the system and you need to prepare your children for that. But we were trying a different lifestyle and to merge that. But um, so there is that part of me that wants to be an activist in the sense of protesting and, and making political change. And then there's the other side of me that really just wants to get my hands dirty and work the land and make the circles happen. And it's been really this year, and also when watching the TED talk by Chaz Jewett from the Exile Pipeline, and she says the same thing when she walked the length of the Missouri, she realized true activism is building something. And that there's, at the end of like breaking down something is only burnout. And like the system as it stands is going to break on its own. But it's always that whole thing about, you know, bad things happen when good people do nothing. So if we don't object to say what's happening here with prospecting, like, if we just don't object, if we're not aware of it, it's just going to happen. But if we, you know, turn our whole lives around to fight that, that's a full-time job for people. And yeah. It's full-on and it leads to burnout. Yeah. And it takes away from working in the garden and growing food for my children and grandchildren. Which is what we all have to do. So yeah, so one so, way or another. Yeah, so my heart is in building, happen. building something, yeah. and it, and I do respect or admire those that really do all that work, writing submissions and sending them. It's really hard work, and no one gets paid for that. Yeah. And it it it's thankless work. Yeah, thankless work, mm. very necessary, and at the end of the day, it yields very little, mm. which is not fair. Even when, say, 20,000 people sign it, like in a recent example in Leitrim or somewhere where they, where they just looked at them as spam, mm. 20,000 signatures. It's like people work tirelessly to get that together. And, you know, so what's effective, what's a helpful response to our current issues? So just to have an open mind to that and... Definitely growing food feels right. And growing community. Yeah. If we can grow community, <clears throat> if we can bring people together and do things together, 
then we are strong. Mm. And especially the children, because, you know, children deserve to have some wholesomeness in their upbringing and in their childhood. And with wholesomeness, I mean time spent together in nature, where people are laughing and singing and sharing food. Making fires. And there's Chopping such, wood. You know, all those yeah. natural things, but even the basic stuff. And a lot of children now, their childhoods are, are hard, you know, because yeah. of the way the world is. Yeah. So we can all make time out of our lives to create a bit of wholesomeness for children and learn a song and smile and sing at them. Yeah. And, and that's so important yeah. because they, they are our future. And if they don't have resilience and a song in their heart, how are they going to stand the changes that are coming? Well, I came here 25 years ago with my ex-partner and we had four children. And the first years I was thinking, I'm doing this for the kids, for my kids. I was raised in a Flemish, well, Flemish-style family where the door was open, people were always welcome. Then I learned more about something that is deep in me and you and everyone, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we're here. One of the original instructions why we are on this earth. And one of them, because there's many, is showing hospitality. And that's what we do here. When people arrive, we try and really try to make time for them to listen, what they have to bring, what they want to say, what their passions are, what their, passions what are, their gifts are to the world, um, to set an extra plate at the table to feed them and show hospitality as we are intent to do. Yeah. Yeah. So like the first time we had a gathering here was like nine years ago at the Equinox, because we always have an Equinox gathering here. It's free the nearest weekend to the, to the Equinox in September. Just a little plug there. <laughs> mm. um, and after that year, then eight years ago in August, we started the Red Tents every new moon. Every new moon we have a women's circle. And um, I suppose we have the question, like, why a gender-specific circle? But I guess the answers, they lie in, like, women have not been able to do those things. And now they have that freedom. Um, and actually, when women come together with an open heart for sharing, they, there's the level of support for each other because we have a shared experience. But most women think that they have a singular experience so when women open up to that they can actually help their family and community much better mm. so there's been a real deficit in in, in in the culture for women supporting women so to to get away from like toxic relationships among women to making them healthy and supportive mm. again and from a, from a woman's circle like that, then very quickly you, you evolve in a man's circle, a boy's circle, a children's circle, a girl's circle, a elder circle, a pregnant people's circle, a father's so. circle. Or mix. Or mi and then the mixed events, you know, <coughs> it, just, it just grows with, with this women's circle at the heart of it. Mm. And it's, it, it, it just keeps giving. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. Just to move away from those like more toxic relationships. And, and, of course, the gender separate uh, groups are still inclusive, you know, people who identify with being a woman are also welcome. Mm. It's, uh, so it's very fluid still. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and the men's group and the women's group are radically different. 
So those are interesting things. I think you know? if, um, if I may quote Mani Tonkwat, um, medicine story, a man who came here on the land four years ago, uh, involved in the Circle Bay gathering. Here. He, teacher, brought, yeah. he brought Circle Bay to the land here. And he said, first, adults, ye adults, you listen to the elders, because they have the experience of the years. They're, the many years, you know, the long vision they have. They have also seen different lifestyle, you know, I'm talking about people from the 1940s, 30s, 40s, 50s as well. And while you listen to the elders, you also listen to the children. They don't have that long vision because they're only here for a short time, but they have this spontaneity. The and ambition. The and ambition and the, 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 the pure thought in them. And I, I think that's what we have to do as and adults. And it, and it, we, ended, we it ended by saying, and the people in the middle we listen. who work and carry everything, they of sit and rest do. and listen. They listen. They don't talk. No. They just listen to the young and the old. There is a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. But yeah, to go from where we are to that, that's the bit we're facing, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, and a lot of elders, they, they don't have the long vision anymore. They're just watching telly. And a lot of youngsters, do, they're, they're devoid of motivation because they're on their phones. Mm. So those are real uh, issues. But I suppose we're here and we're giving that example of a story mm. to still spark that in people that elders are useful <laughs> members that can bring a lot of goodness. And young people must be listened to. Yeah. It's their world we're creating. Mm. So that has to come in. So yeah, that's... But that's a utopian talk again. Mm. But for now, I, I guess part of me feels that we are witnessing a time when all these things will crumble by themselves. The capitalist system is inherently unstable. The exclusive reliance on the market for all of our economic decision making is the foundation of the boom and bust cycles we are subject to. The old slogan of socialism or barbarism seems more relevant today than it ever has. Capitalism is doomed to collapse under its own weight. The question is what will come next. That's up to us, but we need to organise ourselves in preparation for it. One group that's beginning to build for this inevitability is Schliele. Many of the people I interviewed for this series I met at a climate camp organised by Schliele in Tarbert, County Kerry last August. Seamus Diskin is one of the spokespeople for the group. I asked Seamus how he came into environmental consciousness himself and to explain what are the principles of Schliele and what exactly is a climate camp? I'm Seamus Diskin and I'm, I'm from Galway. I trained as a community and youth worker in the mid-2000s. Before that I was involved in a lot of different activities that, I wasn't, that weren't really doing anything for me. So, but community work is kind of where I want to be at. I mean, I'm in my 60s now. I, I was involved with the campaign against Karen Soar. Um, and as I said, before I retrained as a community worker, I was involved in more conventional employment um, and I, I actually trained as an engineer. Um, and a lot of the time that was a problem, was that that kind of occupation was getting in the way. You know, I, I, I was conscious that, you know, I can't be the spokesman for this organisation because my boss wouldn't like it, do you know. Um, that was, so that was one 
aspect of it. Um, yeah, like uh, I have been passionate about the climate crisis since the Kyoto Protocol, you know, and trying to gain more knowledge and understanding and trying to, like obviously there's a lot of science in climate um, issues, uh, but there's also political analysis, do you know, and uh, understanding that that the crisis of climate that, that we are in now and the crisis of nature um, uh, are, are to a large extent contributed to by living in a capitalist structure where um, these inputs, if you like, are not valued or they're not priced, you know. So uh, the bottom line really, I suppose, is, is, is that the market does not provide good solutions, you know, despite what people will tell us. Uh, I was invited to join Schliella. I'm very happy that I did join them. So they're um, an all-Ireland, an all-Ireland Irish organisation that's built on principles of community, non-hierarchical. That means they don't have an authoritarian structure like there isn't a chairperson or you know that kind of committee kind of situation. They're also, another principle of them would that be they'd be anti-capitalist and they would reject capitalism as a system you know, uh, for achieving anything. And I think finally the thing, the pillar that would be very important to them is that they believe in that community is a foundation, a building block for everything. And that kind of, they mightn't say it like this now, but for me it's that they, they would, that would incorporate the, a principle of subsidiarity that the idea that um, decisions should be made at the most local level possible, do you know that that, that uh, decisions about communities should be made within communities, whereas in the prevailing system, decisions about communities are often made by shareholders and boards of directors in other countries, even you know our governments in Dublin, you know, um, so. That's kind of where they come from. They're they're very interesting and uh, entertaining bunch of people. Um, a lot of um, diversity among them. Um, a lot of radical thinkers as well. I suppose their legacy. There would be people involved in Shliella who were involved in the Rossport Solidarity Camp. There are people involved in Shliella who would be connected with Glushukt the environmental movement and there are others like it's not a precondition by any manner means and um, yeah there would also have been people involved in previous climate camps in Ireland you know so that again would be another uh, wing if you like to Shriella would be that they would see the importance of climate camps as a as an activity as a, a form of protest and uh, they would like to promote that so climate camp uh, is uh, has as three principal functions uh, one is it's a center of protest and resistance uh, second it's a center of education and thirdly it's a place for people to come together in community at relax and enjoy themselves and have a bit of fun and overarching those three objectives then would be the idea that of modeling a kind of a society that we would like to see. Um, a society that's based on community, a society that's based on equality and respect, 
and um, a society that's based on, how would you say, uh, respecting the planet. You know, they had been working on that. Actually, I haven't been formed that long now, you know, but the COVID, as I said, was delayed it. So the current climate camp now, 2022, um, is the first one in 12 years, I think, in Ireland, you know, uh, for various reasons. But for the last three or four years, COVID was the problem. Um, so the, this camp is uh, here in Tarbert in North Kerry, uh, the site of the proposed LNG. There was uh, one of the earliest in-person meetings after COVID um, was held in Galway. And the major topic of discussion then was trying to firm up on the why and where, why and where for the camp. Yeah. Um, and the where really, after a lot of discussion over and back, it kind of came down to two possibilities. One being here in North Kerry and the other being the Spurns, where there is a, a community-based campaign against... Uh, extract the extractive industry of gold mining by Dalradian Corporation and that's a very very worthy project um, I actually visited myself a couple of weeks ago uh, in the end what swung it f in favour of the LNG was the Ukraine war uh, it was expected to and I think did create a lot of uh, additional leverage for the people in favour of LNG you know the, the, even though it's it's a spurious argument in my view, but they're using it, you know. Um, uh, so the, we're here, the camp is set up. Uh, the timing really had uh, a lot to do, there were numerous factors about the timing, but um, this field is used for agricultural purposes. So like the timing of silage cutting had a bearing on it as well, you know. Um, uh, so the, the person that owns the field doesn't, farmers you know so these people everybody had to be accommodated the climate camp embodies some key ingredients to a successful revolutionary movement in particular community building and the sharing of knowledge and skills the weakness of the mainstream climate movement is its use of a language of less less consumption less flying less meat we need to shift to a language of more more time more socializing more freedom here's laura kyo Exactly, yeah. And I think that's what we're missing. Like, it's always framed around this sacrifice. Like, oh, well, do you want people have, to have cold homes in the winter? It's just like, fuck you, man. Like, that was, a, <laughs> that was an interview outside a biodiversity conference recently for some radio station. It's just like, come yeah. on. Nobody's saying we want people to go cold in the winter. What we're saying is, like, here's what I want to see. Like, four-day work weeks. Lovely long weekends, every weekend. Mm. Affordable housing, lovely warm, cozy homes. You know what I mean? Mm. Like we could have all of that. Yeah, yeah. Healthy, nutritious food, time for community, for growing food locally. Like getting to know farmers again, actually. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like good crack, like there's so much more we could do. Stuff that doesn't involve just going to the shops to buy shit. Mm. Even Kayleys, like, I can't remember the last time I was at a Kaylee. Those Kayleys <laughs> we had at the climate camp. Oh, like, it was magic. Yeah. Amazing. Like, living in community again. It's yeah. a lovely, lovely feeling, like. Yeah. You, yeah, you don't realise the lack of it until you experience it then for in those little, like, pockets of utopia that get created temporarily and stuff like that, you know. So. 
so. Exactly. And why don't we create that more actively in our everyday lives? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think that's, we could, that's... And it is happening, like... Yeah, I think that's what Katu are doing in some way. I mean, on the face of it, they're organising around protecting tenants and holding landlords to account. But that's functionally what, what it does, is like it's bringing people together and creating that sense of community amongst people in a city where it's kind of, everyone's very atomized and that, yeah. Yeah, and that sense of community is so crucial. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, like, setting up a book club with your neighbours, that is... That is actually climate activism mm. because you're bringing your community together and you're becoming more resilient by getting to know each other better. And when the shit might hit the fan, then you've got a better setup to work together instead of separating further. Yeah, yeah. You know, anything that's bringing communities together, anything that's caring, anything that's generous, anything that brings more heart like into society. Making relatives a meeting of communities which was unfortunately cancelled due to COVID-19, was an attempt to build and solidify links between native nations in the so-called USA and communities here in Ireland. Here's Emma Mink. So we met very, very briefly in, uh, Do on Donald's jetty in, uh, in, <laughs> in Leitrim. Um, and you were there to, as part of the Making Relatives uh, event, which, which had to be postponed. Can you talk a bit about... Um, how that came about, like what, uh, what's your link to that and how did you, how did you wind up in Leitrim this time basically? Yeah, sure. I went with Chaz in 2018 when she was invited to do a speaking tour um, by various groups in Ireland and she took me as her note taker and I had worked with her in South Dakota when we were doing KXL resistance stuff that kind of led into the Standing Rock um, situation and then everyone knew about it all of a sudden which was great um, but originally I met Chaz in 2015 doing KXL protests um, with like five other people and then in uh, that same year she also was facilitating and leading a group called the Community Conversations um, to address racial division in Rapid City, South Dakota and that's my hometown. So I was really invested in that as well and wanting to help out. Um, so we've been organizing together since 2015. And when she was invited to come to Ireland in 2018, she called me up and she was like, I guess I'm going to Ireland. So um, do you have your passport? Cause I don't want to go by myself again. Um, she went by herself before, but also I am a PhD student and I study um, Britain and Ireland in the 18th and 19th century. So she thought, you know, maybe this will be interesting to mm -hmm. Emma, but also since it was climate related and we had organized with climate um, action together, she thought it'd be something that I would enjoy too because of that. Um, Sound, yeah. For, yeah. for anyone who's, uh, who, who hasn't been paying attention to, to the situation, can you t just say who, who ja Chaz is and what the, what brought her to Ireland initially and, and maybe you could talk a bit about what the intention behind the Making Relatives campaign was. Yeah, absolutely. She is a Minikoju Lakota, um, which is the Shine River Sioux Tribe. And Chaz has been an environmental organizer for a long time, but she was one of the leaders up at Standing Rock and she met some folks from Ireland over there originally um, 
you know, when that was happening in 2016 and they came over to the U S and she met some of them. And also she was in a couple of articles that were public. So she got reached out to by a lot of people from around the world. But I think with the history of international solidarity between Ireland and native nations in the U S she was really interested in going to Ireland. So she actually also went in 2017 and then she met some folks there, um, especially with uh, Friends of the Earth and a couple of their orcs who wanted her to come back to help with campaigns in Ireland in 2018. And then I went there last year in 2021. I went to Ireland as part of my research funding for my PhD program. And I was um, able to reconnect there with Vidalma and Cormac, who had met in 2018, and then Linda and James from Friends of the Earth. Mm. And just brainstorm, uh, because uh, when Chaz was there in 2018, she had promised that she would bring back a large group of Native activists to come over to Ireland with her next time to help with the uh, campaign up in the Spurns, especially because, you know, they really are on the front lines in terms of the mining issue in Ireland. Um, it was really amazing to meet them and just see like how kind they were to Chaz and how wonderful everybody treated us. So. Um, one of the things that Chaz and I were talking about after that trip was that she wished that she could have brought over some Lakota youth because in the U.S., um, but especially in South Dakota and Minnesota, the um, there's a lot of segregation and a lot of racial violence and people have like beer and urine and feces thrown on them in Rapid City especially, but you know, missing and murdered Indigenous women, like, is a reality. Um, people get murdered or go missing or, you know, they find them in the creek all the time. And there was actually someone during the pandemic in Rapid City who was uh, killing unsheltered Lakota people down by the creek in Rapid Creek in a city of, like, you know, 75,000 people. That's no yeah, so it's pretty dangerous to just like exist as a Lakota person there. And I think there is so much racial tension. Um, so Chaz really wanted the youth to have the experience that she had of that warmth and that kindness and solidarity from Irish folks earlier on in their lives. <laughs> you know, because I think it is really important to feel welcome somewhere. That was kind of the, the original seed of that idea yeah it it definitely um was a pretty ambitious plan so i think postponing the trip will give us more time to make everything even better for the visitors who come and i think with the youth uh you know they they also um they're doing theater and art and performance and there was that event in Leitrim at Manor Hamilton that mm. was really creative and performance-based. So I also think that they would love to see folks in Ireland performing their, you know, songs and poems and yeah, yeah. Um, plays. And, you know, it'll be fantastic when it is able to happen. Yeah. 
But you, you made it over and you inspired that. Can you talk a bit about what that what that was like for you? Yeah, I I came uh, in June and I actually came from an academic conference and for more research on my dissertation project, but then I ended up getting COVID immediately upon landing. So I think that may have been part of the, you know, like this is not quite safe um, realization that mm. everybody had yeah, yeah. because it, it is something that even if you wear a mask on the airplane, if no one else is wearing a mask around you, you still really aren't safe. Mm. So you can't really, you know, protect yourself as easily with from getting COVID um, when the restrictions are so low. So I'm hoping they add a mask mandate potentially for air travel, at least just since you're on the flight for so long with so yeah. many people. Um, but um yeah do you mind repeating the question <laughs> sorry i was just asking what you what, what you got up to basically when you did come over and, oh uh, yeah. yeah yeah i i was mostly stuck in a dorm room in ucd for the first like week and a half yeah. because of having covid and quarantining and then i went to some libraries and looked at archives but then the last Part of my trip was when the rest of the travelers were supposed to come over mm. who were primarily Lakota and some water walkers who were non-native and basically you know since we de decided Chaz and Sharon primarily decided to postpone the trip Sharon Day is the leader of the water walks mm. and she's an elder who's asthmatic and she's really a wonderful organizer and um, Chaz, it always calls her her mentor, so I know that she means a lot to Chaz. Um, she's Ojibwe, and uh, they had talked, and Chaz was getting a lot of questions from the parents and realized that, you know, that's a lot of people to bring over and try to protect, um, and it's a lot of responsibility, especially to watch out for so many youth, too, yeah, yeah. because it at least 10 of the people who were going to come over were under 18 or 19 years old. So mm -hmm. they're pretty young. Um, and that's just, <laughs> you know, you got to make sure that you can keep people safe if you're oh, yeah, bringing yeah, them somewhere they've never been. Mm -hmm. um, but we ended, when I was there, I ended up um, still meeting up with some folks. We didn't do everything that we were planning to do for the Making Relatives trip, but because the trip was canceled late notice um, and because the campaigns were at a sensitive time um, in terms of creating awareness before prospecting really takes off in Leitrim, for example, we wanted to make sure that we kept up the momentum that we had gotten from having all these Zoom meetings for the past year and meeting each other and meeting all the other organizers um, in other places. Because I think one of the benefits of the planning for Making Relatives was that all kinds of folks from all over Ireland were talking to each other who really didn't know each other either. So it connected some of the people from the U.S. to people in Ireland, but it primarily connected people in Ireland with each other who I think really needed to talk with each other um, and plan with each other. So that was pretty awesome to see that everybody ended up getting to meet in person and, and see each other.
Despite the logistical difficulties in organising international community building, it's vital that we do this at grassroots level. As Fergal Anderson said in an earlier episode, if we all stop flying to meet each other because we're worried about carbon, the business class won't. They'll keep forging their class solidarity in their private jets, so we need to keep building and build stronger than them. Communications technology is a useful tool, I'm using it right now, but as it stands, the terms are still set by capitalists. They control which platforms are elevated. Until we seize control of the technological production, the use of advanced tech will always be a double-edged sword. No individualised solutions will take us out of this crisis we're facing. We must learn from each other, directly where possible, and build power collectively. I'll send you back to Laura now. Like we both live in Dublin, which is under the control of a, a landlord class, half the government are landlords, and people just don't have the time to even sit and think for a few minutes because they're like, have to work non-stop just to barely keep a roof over their heads and then the evenings are too wiped out to even think about that. And so it's like the whole thing is intertwined in that way that stops us from having the mental energy to think about what we're going to do to stop it. Yeah, but it's kind of like, uh, it's like what a friend said at the climate camp. He said something really interesting and I've been thinking about it ever since. Because I never had this, like, I could never really avoid it, to be honest. Mm. I tried, but I couldn't. And so that's why I work in this, because I can't look away. Mm. But a friend of mine, he said that um, he avoided it for a long while, and he was afraid that it would make him more anxious to learn more about what's going on in the world. He was afraid that, like, because he was already anxious, just knowing a little bit. But what he found was the opposite. Like, when he actually faced it, and when he actually learned more, he feels less anxious, because now he knows. And now he's active in Mm. the environmental movement. And now he has friends that also care. And now he feels more alive, like, and he has more meaning in his life. And so it's true, people are really stressed and they're very busy um, and they're not happy. And they're kind of trapped in that Mm. way. But whatever leeway they might have, like, I I think the thing is we're trapped so long as we continue down this path. And the sooner we look up and basically start a revolution the sooner we get out of this like for ourselves for our own quality of life too Mm. i would love to see rent strikes in dublin for example yeah you know what i mean even just like joining a union like joining katu like joining different movements that don't take a huge amount of time and effort but Mm. but that way we're solidifying power so that we can actually shift this towards a better quality of life yeah absolutely it doesn't need to be like quit your job go vegan it doesn't need to be these big uh scary changes it can just be you know what maybe i'll join this meeting instead of watching tv tonight like maybe i'll just check this out maybe i'll just like dip my toe in and see um that that's something that i think it's really important for people to realize is like i was talking to enda from katu yesterday and he was saying that like the their main thing isn't fighting landlords it's organizing people and people don't realize until they're in it how much crack that actually is as well like it, it seems like oh, it's a chore to go to the meeting rather than relaxing but actually once you go to the meeting you're meeting people you're not isolated anymore you you realize you're in the same position as loads and loads of other people and you start feeling that collective strength there's nothing else like it really and it, it does yeah you, you do you do have a, a deeper more meaningful life then and it's so good for like the doomism to actually meet other people and see how much other people care too, you yeah, know? Yeah, oh, definitely. Like, yeah. I don't like this conception that we don't care. I think we really do care and we just don't know how to let ourselves care because it's yeah. painful sometimes yeah. to care. 
And so it's like that balance of making friends with people, like having the crack while doing this stuff. Mm. And it's more, it really is genuinely so much more enlivening than avoiding it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we can't, the, the other thing is like, we can't avoid it forever. So yeah, the sooner we sure. face up to this, actually, the more prepared we'll be anyway for yeah, whatever's yeah. coming down the road. And people think like, oh, technology will save us. We're so clever. Mm. What technology is going to save us specifically? Okay. You know, it's like, unless while we still have this worldview of exploitation and consumerism, our technology will serve that view of exploitation. Mm. It won't help us. Even the technology of solar panels, wind power, that's only currently our energy usage is going up so much. It's like, that's just taking on the extra load instead right, of allowing yeah. us to reduce fossil fuels. Yeah. So it's like, until we actually calm down and stop using so much, it's not going to be any answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Where does that use need to be curbed, do you think? Sorry? Where does that energy, energy use need to be curbed, do you think? I mean, there's so much waste in the system, mm. but mostly it's like the top 10 richest, like percent of the population. Like it's 10%. Did I say that right? The top 1% richest really like, yeah, yeah. first of all, let's just outlaw private jets. You know what I mean? Mm. Let's outlaw this absurd waste of energy of the top 1%. They have yeah. yachts running all year just in case someone jumps on them. Like 9,000 tons of gas was just flared in Russia every was it every minute or every hour i can't even remember it's huge obscene amounts of energy wasted yeah, yeah but again it's like the solutions are there i can say them who's going to actually do them because those in power are the ones that are actually living in this way yeah, yeah. and so that's why we need to take power back we yeah, need yeah. to change culture we need to change how we see the world yeah, yeah. um because otherwise it's like we can talk about solutions all day and we can nod and be like oh yeah that's a great idea but you know, how do we actually get that to happen? Yeah, yeah, you need the power to make it happen. Which and then, citizens' assemblies are a really good workaround because often politicians don't want to make an unpopular decision, so they could put it on a citizens' assembly. Yeah, yeah. And you will see with citizens' assemblies around Europe that have been run, like they want these answers. Um, so it's about making them legally binding so that they're actually implemented. Mm. Because as soon as you vote for someone and they get into power, then you're prone to corruption, you're prone to these issues. Citizens' yeah, yeah. assemblies spread that out across the population. So we actually genuinely get what people want. Mm. Like, I don't want people to do what I want either. I want citizens' assemblies so we can all decide together. To wind down this episode, I'll drop you in on a conversation with Ono Canavan, who you heard from earlier in the series. We talked about the hold liberalism has on the environmental movement and the need for mass organising to build real democracy one that's ecologically embedded, based on a planned economy? I think you have to be an internationalist. I don't think it's... Uh, and, I, and I think in terms of what they... Like, the cost of that, like, the... Um, like, in terms of, like, we have to build up our kind of industry and our military capabilities and all the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what all the capitalist countries do. Like That's the real difficult thing, is the maintaining strength without depleting the, the basis of life in general, like maintaining, how do we, how do we keep recreating ourselves without uh, destroying the, natu the, the so-called yeah. natural world? Yeah. Um, that's an issue in, within either system. I don't think that's been worked out by anybody yet, really.
Yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah where I think like eco-socialism is a good concept. It's obviously about a planned economy, but a planned economy that um, is based on regulating the relationship between humanity and, and nature and not kind of this Promethean sort of a thing, like where you, you mm. just try and uh, subjugate nature to, to humanity. There was that idea of, um, what is it, uh, full automatic luxury space communism. Uh, fully automated luxury uh, communism, uh, yeah. Bastani. Uh, Bastani, yeah, sorry, I added in space because that was another... Like, I think that's not, we're not going to have that, like... Oh, it's uh, total gibberish. You know, yeah. I think, um, I haven't read the book, but it's just the concept. I think, yeah. like, one thing I think about is, like, if you do have a... We're already in the midst of, you know, environmental climate breakdown. And I think the question is how much damage is done before we manage to bring about a new system. Um, and so, like, yeah, what, like a new eco-social society, like, one of the things that I, I think that... The, there'd probably be a good bit of work to be done, you know, like in terms of, like if people talk about uh, jobs and that kind of thing and that there won't be be jobs, I think I think there may well be like a lot of work to do to kind of restore, to try and restore ecosystems and that yeah. kind of thing. And using, I don't know, yeah, what, what kind of technologies will be there to try and, and do that and if they were done on the basis of, the obviously yeah, use the technology to actually restore that balance rather than just, just keep the capitalist show on the road for as long as possible. I think whatever new society will be um, could well could very well be built in a like in the midst of that of a lot of destruction. It might not necessarily be easy. It definitely uh, won't be easy. Yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, ra- I read that book, um, and uh, a friend of mine put it well. He said you can tell that this book was written from the middle of the empire. Do you know, you can tell <laughs> it was written from from England. <laughs> uh, like it's a really good book, and there's a lot of good ideas in it. Um, it was an enjoyable read, like, and he explores a lot of the kind of the potential within the tech technological fixes. But I kept waiting for him to talk about, it and he didn't bring it up once. He didn't didn't once talk about where the materials for all these technologies mm. are coming from. He didn't address yeah. the fact that they all come from the global south, that they're all mined in South America yeah. and Africa, yeah. and to some extent in the Far East. He didn't mention it Did at all. Okay. Well, not a, not well. a bit. It was just like all these wonderful things are being invented. Blah blah blah. No talk about what it actually yeah. takes to make them. There was like the yeah. proper like. Blinkered. I was surprised because he's not. He's like seems like a fairly critical thinker, but he, yeah. that sort of blinkered view of renewables that they yeah. we just need to switch renewables and it'll be grand. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, you mentioned the the rise of the right earlier, and there was lots of talk of that. The climate camp, you know, like the the, the right's influence on on the environmental movement, but I kept thinking we need to start talking about liberalism's influence on the environmental movement because it's already has a hold of it. Yeah. And the environmental mainstream environmentalism is so dominated by liberal values. Yeah. Like that's really where the struggle is. It's not like, Yeah, yeah. Sure we need to resist the right, but they're not the ones that control the environmental movement. It's the liberals yeah. do. And it's it's that's also Yeah. Like it just dictates the terms of things. We just need to switch to a different we need to <laughs> let shell switch renewables yeah, yeah. which they're trying like loads of the oil and gas companies are switching yeah, to wind and yeah. solar like it, they just shouldn't yeah. be allowed to do that surely yeah, you should be like, they should be punished so, so, yeah yeah <laughs> you know? no absolutely yeah and and yeah like and still planning on like because there's been a massive energy expansion like it hasn't been the case that well like obviously in in Europe there's been some level of a move away from fossil fuels it's not happening nowhere near like fast enough or whatever mm. 
But in general, this is like it's been part of a, a, a just massive energy expansion. So like the, the fossil fuels in general are still on the rise, and so is renewable energy, like yeah, as, yeah. As, as well on the rise. And yeah, I mean you're talking about the the global south. Like yeah, like, there's real parallels now between the the kind of the lithium being mined and the basically the DRC like and children doing the mining often like it's it's like very similar to um you know coal mines in industrial Britain you know it's mm. like the same kind of dynamic um yeah so yeah you won't be able to like I mean the, the idea like what was it, it's a, they want you a few years ago they were on about a million electric vehicles in Ireland would you ever just going to go and like hop into an electric vehicle like it's yeah, like yeah. It's a instead of like a, a decent public transport system, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. The other thing I think uh, that not just so uh, that's one level that liberalism I think impacts the movement is obviously the idea that we can just just do this switch or whatever and mm. just carry on as normal. And you could say more about that. You could say about all the other cycles that are out of whack. There's you know what the nine kind of planetary boundaries or something. You know, there's if you look at nitrogen or phosphorus or any of the any of them they're they go the same way that um as the carbon cycle you know yeah, where yeah. it like it takes a massive uptake uptake and i think four four of them are are, are out of whack already out mm. of four out of nine or something like that so yeah you wouldn't just be able to just move it on but the other the other thing about the um liberalism is uh the i the way that it affects activism some of the kind of direct actions now recently um, around um, uh, there was just stuff around the paintings, the drawing stuff from paintings, mm. and actually, like, who cares? I don't like they didn't damage any paintings. That's not what I'm I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you'd feel for young people who are uh, well, feel for all of us. We're all <laughs> going through, it, but like, yeah. but I, I say say people like ten years younger than us or whatever, like, and they're you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, or whatever, and they're really really desperate but i think the um and that's what they're doing these these actions i think there's a part of kind of liberalism is about you just put forward the idea you you say the truth mm. and you appeal to the authority to listen to you you mm. know and i think that some of the climate movement is i mean i think some of these people will move but i think they would they will you know I mean, maybe they already are involved in other things i don't know you know like maybe they're involved in trying to build kind of broader kind of groups but i think just as a general thing around the environmental movement, it a lot a lot of it has been about yeah what you were talking about earlier. There's no use just building up more and more good arguments and good information. Yeah, like it's the, the it's it, you need to start doing the political and the cultural work. Cause yeah, the science is already done. Yeah, and like and yeah, it, and it's in the news all the time. Yeah. It's in the news so much. Like climate change is just a generally accepted thing now, yeah. except for amongst some fringy people. Yeah, but it it hasn't yeah. translated into yeah. any action. Yeah. And, and, state, like. and I think yeah, and and then yeah, and then for, for, from the movements part side of things, I, I think there's like, are we sort of do you know what Andreas Malm's stuff? Mm, um, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, yeah. um, well, I mean, which one? He's very constantly writing books, very mm. prolific. Like, very interesting read. Read uh, some of the stuff like, uh, mm. but I, I did read uh, the one recent one I read was um, uh, how to blow up a pipeline, and mm. in one sense, it's brilliant. Um, goes through kind of. Some of the issues with the with the movement, with the kind of liberal kind of side of it, but then ultimately, then 
so he calls for kind of essentially ecological terrorism and blowing up the, you know pipelines or that kind of thing yeah. Sab- sabotage sorry is the word yeah, for it. Yeah. but ultimately it follows the same logic because what you're doing is you're trying to you're doing it to appeal to the state to change right you, you know I, it's just an escalation of the same it, tactic it, kind it, of well it, it's it's what you're asking for is you're asking for a small minority to go out and do sabotage so that the the authorities will listen or mm. will they or maybe they'll decide that it's not worth it they'll like start doing renewables because people keep blowing up their pipelines i mean that, that was the best kind of side of it which is mm. like, rather than kind of saying like we need to build up our own power and we need to we should be building protests. I think that's you know we should we should. I'm for protesting, like, but mm. we it, we 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 need to move in the direction of like trying to build our own serious power that can get rid of the state and make a new dem- you know a proper democracy like yeah, an economic yeah. democracy. What do you think a transition like that would look like in the environmental movement? How do you wean the environmental movement off the tactics that yeah. they've been using for years and clearly aren't working? Some of the stuff is starting to happen already in that like. Um, certainly here anyway a lot of the environmental groups are like getting stuck into the um, cost of living coalition for example right, so yeah. like I mean that in and of itself is an attempt to build a mass movement you know mm. which I think it's really important really important like like I was looking at like Fridays for Future stuff there recently and like the, their leaflet was like very radical like very you know like so I think there is like a big uh, section of the environmental movement that is actually kind of uh, radicalizing to the left and is yeah but i mean how, what would it look like i mean i we haven't we haven't managed to build yeah, uh, yeah. you know so how do we do that uh, is it i think yeah i think we yeah, like we have to see it as part of the same struggle that ordinary people are, are, are going through and yeah, yeah. um we have to fucking wrench the movement away from the green party not that they really have it anymore i don't think i think i was going to say i think they're doing that to themselves yeah, they're doing <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. to some but, degree uh, anyway but I think, yeah, well, they, they'll do that to themselves. But then the question is, like, do people just turn away from the idea altogether and yeah. just say, like, like the fucking, like, you can go the Healy Ray route or you can go, we need to tackle both of these things at the same time mm. in terms of, like, the cost of living. And, the, like, I, I thought it was incredible, sorry, tangent again, but, like, the, the turf ban, like, when you had, like, Fianna Fáil backbenchers and, like, likes the Healy Rays and all that, like, you're doing a pretty incredible job as a green party if you're if those people are managing to look like the defenders of the poor beset upon that's it for now in the next episode the final episode of the series we'll keep exploring this question how do we move away from atomized individualist solutions the kind put forward by liberalism towards more community-based solutions so that we can build strength and take the fight to capitalism we need a movement a broad-based coalition that can't be swallowed by the enemy. Thanks as always to Glushuk for funding my travels around the country last year to collect all these interviews, and to DDO for being an absolutely class community radio station. This podcast takes many hours of work to produce, and so far most of the work I do is unpaid, so you can help to change that if you want by signing up on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash turningearth. Sign up for as little as 250 a month to get access to recordings of political and philosophical texts, or a fiver a month to access the full interviews from this series. Any contributions are massively appreciated and will help turn this podcast into a sustainable media project. If you can't afford to contribute financially, that's fine. The main podcast will always be free. If you'd like to help, please spread the word, recommend it to a friend, rate and review on any whatever app you use, 
And if you want to get in touch for any reason, you can give me a shout at turningearthradio at gmail.com. Slangofold. <laughs>